Imagine you are going about your day when all of a sudden something feels off. It feels as if your senses aren't quite working correctly. The world becomes hazy, sounds fade, and the light dims. But it seems like you could feel every muscle and every atom within your body alive with vibrating energy. Then, welling up around you like rising water, you feel overcome with an intense feeling of peaceful bliss. Time slows. What seems like hours are mere minutes. You feel a serene pink light around you. Then you are filled with the overwhelming knowledge that you are in the presence of something vastly more than yourself. Indeed, vastly more than anything that you have ever experienced before. All you feel is love, peace, and calm. There are people who have experiences like this, and they have one thing in common. They are all epileptic. When we think about epileptic seizures, we typically think about people convulsing on the ground, losing consciousness. But this is just one type of seizure. Some people actually have mystical experiences during their seizures. People who experience the transcendent, a profound sense of peace, or who even say that they see the face of God. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology, and how they relate to our society, culture, art, religion, and philosophy. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Spark Dialogue Podcast continues to operate with the help of listeners like you, and in return for your support, you'll be given a chance to participate in the podcast, ask questions to our guests, suggest topics, and see advanced content. You could find more information at patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. Hi, my name is Joseph Tennant. I'm a cultural psychologist who's previously worked on the Mysticism and Epilepsy Project uh, via the Faraday Institute. There are many types of seizures. I think a lot of people are very familiar with epilepsy broadly. It's the most common neurological disease on earth. Um, but there's lots of subclassifications. And this mostly has to do with what area of the brain is affected and whether that spreads across the brain to encompass both hemispheres. So I think the thing people are most familiar with is the generalized tonic-clonic seizure, which is when you have irregular electrical activity throughout the brain and people typically lose consciousness and they have what is, is called tonic-clonic shaking, the stiffness of the body, followed by shaking back and forth uncontrollably. This is what I think most people associate with seizure. Not all seizures associated with epilepsy involve convulsing and losing consciousness. In fact, that's not even the most common type of seizure. During seizures, various parts of the brain are affected. The end result of the seizure depends on which neurons are firing. You also have focal seizures, which is a, a case in which the seizure symptomology is localized to one area of the brain. We often do this in quadrants, so it's temporal lobe, frontal lobe, parietal lobe, occipital lobe. Um, and this is just helpful to understand the underlying uh, mechanism and symptomology rather than focusing on just what appears on the outside. There's actually a recent change. Um, the, the, this, this typography was developed by the International League Against Epilepsy to replace terms people probably are more familiar with, things like grand mal or petite mal, that kind of language. From the outside, it's hard to tell what is happening, what it feels like to have a seizure. What appears like from the outside is only a shadow of what is happening, what the person is undergoing and experiencing. 
you can dive pretty deep into the uh, the neurochemistry of it, and I, I suspect uh, any listeners for your podcast who are neurologists might cringe at how crude I'm going to be in some of these terms. Um, but essentially, what is happening is you are having irregular and synchronous firing of neurons. So, in our day to day life, our neurons are at rest, and then they receive a chemical impulse that triggers a chemical reaction that sends what is known as an action potential, or just a quick little increase in electrical activity down the axon of the neuron. Sort of the it's like a little wire leaving the cell, and then outwards to the the, the terminal, which then distributes that signal to the next neuron down the chain. So you have this sort of like ongoing little spike electricity across each neuron that transmits the signals around to us. And that's kind of weird to think about, but that's how our thoughts and body works. Um, I, I always, when I would reflect on that, it always kind of blows my mind actually is how much, uh, how much is just kind of an explosion of electricity produces hand movements and thoughts. Um, but in epilepsy, essentially things are just firing Willy nilly, this is not a technical term, but is, is the think a way to understand it. You have irregular firings in different areas of the brain. You have, um, synchronous firings, which is just a lot of things happening at the same time without any intention. And the result of that is whatever area of the brain is being affected by this irregular synchronous firing is going to produce its effect in unusual or potentially sort of repetitive and unhelpful ways. So I think when we hits the motor cortex, we understand what that does. It moves our arms and makes us jerk around and shake, um, or it can make our body and muscles stiffen up suddenly without control. When it affects other areas like the temporal lobe, you can get experiential sort of uh, symptoms and outcomes. So these are things like deja vu is a big one. When you get you know, areas that are involved in memory, having irregular firings, you can get things like intense emotion when you're getting you know the, the sort of amygdala and such being being regularly activated. So whatever symptoms you're seeing in epilepsy are really dependent on what area of the brain is being affected by these irregularities. For people who are having seizures that aren't muscular, it may not be entirely obvious to them that they are having a seizure. Imagine that you're having a seizure that involves an intense sense of deja vu, or one that you experience intense emotions. People might not think it's very obvious to bring up these symptoms to their doctor to be diagnosed with epilepsy in the first place. There are some typical patterns. So deja vu is very, very common in temporal of epilepsy. And so when someone is describing these, these experiences of deja vu, often it comes with sort of memory fuzziness or there are other associated physical symptoms. Um, sadly, sort of post deja vu urination is one. Um, so the, because you know, a lot of the areas of the brain do have very typified patterns, we, we have very, we, we all have a somewhat uniform brain with, with exceptions, of course. You do see these clusterings of symptoms that can be useful for, for diagnosis. Um, that being said, lots of people don't necessarily know to report them as seizures. And we saw that in our own research with patients where some of the things they were experiencing might have been caught as epilepsy if they had recognized that it was a seizure and not a weird vision or something odd happening to them. So they didn't think to bring it forward because they thought, oh, I must be going a little crazy and I'm scared to address that as opposed to you know, recognizing that it is, it is a clear physical ailment. Many people with epilepsy also experience what some like to think of as a warning before their seizure. This is called an aura. Auras are often understood to be sort of warning signs of a broader seizure. That's a little inaccurate. So an aura is some sort of experiential thing. Like, you know, deja vu is an aura. Um, you get things like derealization, the sense that things are kind of off somehow with reality. These are often the initial spark 
of a seizure. And as the seizure symptomology spreads, you get some of the other things associated with it as more areas of the brain become affected. So for people who have generalized tonic-clonic seizures, for example, sometimes they get these warning auras where the first area of the brain affected gives them an unusual sensation, and they can try to maybe sit down before the, the rest of the seizure generalizes and they you know, they go unconscious. So that's often how it's, it, it, it's discussed. I mean, you have auras in migraine as well, actually. These sort of experiential, some people have like lights or sort of a pulsing sensation. But for some, seizures take on another feeling completely. They may feel as if they're transported to another dimension. Perhaps they understand the entirety of the universe and its meaning and some even feel like they see the face of God. Their seizures become mystical experiences. The details might be different from one person to another, but for the people that have them, they are no doubt profound and may even be life-changing. Not everyone has a uniform mystical experience, both in the theological literature as well as in our, our research. So from a theological philosophical perspective, there's a big fight over what counts as mystical. And there's a lot of texts that are trying to carve out a specific space and exclude certain things. Like visions is a very contentious area where some people think visions are really important to mysticism and others think that visions have no place in the mystical discourse. So we try to be expansive in what we consider mysticism when going into this study. And as a consequence, we have quite a spread of experiences associated with epilepsy that we were interested in. So for some people, there are intense sensations of ecstasy. For some people, there's an intense sense of revelation or new knowledge. The noetic quality is what it's called. Um, for others, there are sort of visual components or sensory components. Um, for others, there's a sense of reassurance and calm and warmth, a sudden peaceful emotion that comes over them. I think the most radical was someone who's had a sense that they were serving as a bridge between an altered reality. And they had the sensation of part of themselves being in this other place, this other world, and then part of them being anchored to reality as we know it. And that sort of liminality is, is I think, the core element for them. So in terms of what counts as a mystical thing, we really let the, the people experiencing it decide because they know what is different than the normal day-to-day -day reality. And that disruption is really what we were interested in. I mean, some of them just noted that it was a very interesting experience that maybe had a spiritual edge, but was not explicitly religious, in part because they were not explicitly religious. Um, of those who are somewhat religious, it had more of a religious uh, element. That's one of the other things we're interested in this research, is how much is the background religion you're bringing to these experiences part of how you interpret them? You know, Is it the case that people with no religion are suddenly seeing the face of a religious icon like Jesus or Vishnu? Or is it that people without religion are having odd experiences and people with religion are seeing these religious icons. That, that was an open question, actually. You may think that the people who are having mystical experiences during their seizures are the intensely religious, people who feel like they can talk to God anyways through prayer and meditation. But surprisingly, that's not always the case. Who are the people who are having these? Like, Do you find that they do tend to have a religious background or have there been people who are like completely maybe agnostic or atheistic and then all of a sudden they have one of these seizures and they're like, oh my gosh, God does exist. <laughs> have there been instances <laughs> like that as well? We've had a little bit of all of it. So one of the reasons this this research was interesting to me, so I primarily, I'm not a neurologist. I'm primarily a psychologist who studies religion. Um, 
And I think what's what's compelling is that epilepsy doesn't care where you're from. Epilepsy, like I said, is the most common neurological disease in the world, and it is blind to who it affects. And so, you know, we can get sort of this natural spread of perspectives in people um, and, and see how it, it, these unusual experiences brought out by this disease are vary within culture. Um, so we did this research in the United Kingdom, um, and the United Kingdom fairly recently is is a pretty secular place, actually. We did a general population study, um, a, a survey to, to assess sort of the religious affiliation of people in the UK, and predominantly none, uh, the sort of sociological category, none, no religion, no interest, or no religion, but a little spirituality, was about 50% of our sample. So we do absolutely have secular people coming into this with these unusual experiences. And for some, it really made them question. For others, they say it's very odd and it felt kind of spiritual and they attribute it to disease. Um, we do have Christians, uh, Christian women in the sample who was kind of lukewarm on faith, had a really profound experience with seizure and really recommitted to faith. Um, we had another person for whom this really ignited their interest in Buddhism. Uh, they had a strong serenity and a sense of the unusual realness of the world. And that really pushed them down the path towards, towards Buddhist thought. So we've had quite an interesting spread, actually. In the UK, about 50% of people claim to be agnostic or atheist. If these experiences seem to favor the highly spiritual, or if the highly spiritual favored these experiences, you would expect to see more than 50% of people in the study to be religious. So I asked Joseph what his patients were like. So in terms of religious affiliation, it's a, it, it's close enough. I mean, like, regrettably with a smaller sample, you're going to have a bit more flux and variation, but it's it's not so egregious that we, we felt confident saying that people are more religious. Um, so one of the things we did do as part of this study is we commissioned a general population survey with some of the scales we gave to the participants. So we, we gave out something called the, uh, the spiritual transcendence scale, which is, is a trait measurement of spirituality. It was actually meant to be a part of a, a expansion of the big five personality traits. Um, and what we found is that the, uh, our, our patients didn't seem that much different from the, the general population in terms of sort of spirituality or religious affiliation. So that was a kind of a pleasant surprise, actually, is that it, we seemed like we sort of captured the normal spread, roughly, given that we didn't have a ton of people. Also, another thing I was curious about is that you mentioned someone who might be Christian might see the face of Jesus or someone who's Buddhist might see the face of Buddha. Do you see that correlation like in, you know, it whatever religion that you lean towards, that's what people tend to see or tend to experience? Yeah. So interestingly, that didn't really happen. Um, so we, d we did a control uh, sample of interviews of uh, people who were priests in the Church of England who had had some sort of mystical encounter. Uh, it it's required to have some sort of spiritual experience. And oftentimes they talk about their encounters with God. And it's interesting the ways in which there's a, a some degree of uniformity in those experiences, the way they talk about, like, you know, some people talk about literally seeing the face of Christ. Some talk about, you know, like a sense of calm, but it, it follows well within the Christian tradition. Our epilepsy patients, even within Christianity, are very wide in, in, in the kind of things they are experiencing. Um, and it's interesting the way in which it's incorporated into existing uh, seizure symptomology. So the person who had this religious conversion, um, their, their seizure symptomology was always uh, around voices and then the physical ailments that came with. So there would be these repetitive voices, sometimes they're mean, sometimes they're mundane, but 
post surgery there was this change where the like one of the first voices they had post surgery was uh they, they attributed it to God, a sort of a peaceful voice that said, I'm here and said nice things to them. And they took that as a sign that you know God was with them and was turning their life around. And they've said they actually haven't had any unpleasant voices since. So it's it's much more tied to the seizure symptoms than it is to a like a, a particular Christian tradition. It's more that the tradition lent itself to interpretation in that case. There were many people throughout history that had epilepsy, and some of these had very powerful mystical experiences. The most famous being uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, the Russian author. Um, so Dostoevsky definitely had epilepsy. There's lots of cases of early attacks, both from clinicians and from family. So it was pretty unambiguous that he, that he had epilepsy. But within his within his seizure symptomology, he would have these very powerful auras of uh, not only ecstasy, but of a sensation or knowledge that the, the divine is real, touching the divine. And these are from his own accounts as well as uh, accounts from his, his siblings. And there's this uh, this recounting that his sister has, where they were talking about religion, and Dostoevsky suddenly exclaims, "God exists, He exists." And then he kept talking, and he says, "The air was filled with a big noise, and I tried to move. I felt the heaven was going down upon the earth, and that it had engulfed me. I have really touched God. He came into me myself. Yes, God exists." He goes on to speculate, um, you know, healthy people can't imagine the happiness we epileptics feel during the second Bukhara fit. Muhammad in his Quran said that he had seen paradise and gone to it. And all these stupid, clever men are really sure he's a liar. But no, he did not lie. He really had been to paradise during this attack. He was a victim of the disease like I was. I don't know if this felicity lasts for seconds or hours or months. But believe me, for all the joys that life might bring, I wouldn't exchange this one. So for Dostoevsky, I mean, this is this profound revelation, and he directly associated with the seizures because, of course, he would have a generalized seizure after this event. This was his warning aura, <laughs> which I I just can't personally. I, I I struggle to imagine how that affects a person. I mean, like I, he he cites it as proof that God is real, um, but just to, to to know that your seizure would come with this revelation is is mind blowing. Another historical case is St. Brigitta of Sweden. She has all these really interesting visions of hell and like initially very scared that the devil was trying to trick her with these visions. And it, it was a priest uh, who was a friend of hers who said, no, this is, you know, God is speaking to you. You need to write these down. You need to share these. Um, and what's interesting about this is there's a... a neurologist in Sweden, Anne-Marie Lantblom, who was looking through research on St. Brigida and found uh, that some had studied what they're pretty confident is her skull that was in a reliquary. So St. Brigida, of course, as is tradition with many Catholic saints, they're not buried, they're, and parts of their body are kept in reliquaries for, for adoration. And so having access to what is likely the skull of St. Brigida, they could then look to see if there's any signs that would suggest neurological disease. And there is indeed an indentation that is consistent with uh, tumor growth. 
which could absolutely cause seizures in the temporal lobe. So that was another case, which is entirely feasible that this is someone who was having epilepsy-related experiential auras and was writing about them as a saint. Knowing the source, at least the medical, physical source, of these mystical experiences could be a letdown for some. Perhaps it takes the magic out of it, so to say. There definitely is some some concern there. So we had uh, a, a patient who had some really profound experiences um, post-surgery with sort of daily morning seizures that had this intense sense of joy and of the universe just pouring out love. Um, I mean, these really beautiful descriptions, but you know, it's it's directly after surgery where they had a, a tumor in their skull. So there's a clear link there. This is not something that happened before. It's happening as part of this brain issue, and there's a real tension in this person where. On the one hand, they know what's causing it physically. And on the other hand, it's so beautiful that really you know, there's something that they want to capture and hold on to there. So the, uh, the medicalization element really does make people question what they've gone through. In other cases, you know, some people really never buy it. Um, and they're just like, I, I, there's an interesting study. It's um, Hansen and Broadcorp. Uh, it's the largest case study. Um, I think we may beat them now, but it's the largest case study of, of people with mystical style or ecstatic seizures. And there's a, one of their accounts has a patient who was singing in a church choir and had an experience of, of sort of a divine connection while singing in a church choir. And their first reaction was, oh no, I'm mentally ill. I need to go to a hospital. Like you would think that's the prime time <laughs> for, for that kind of experience. And they said, oh no, this is bad. Um, so it's like, I, I think there is the case that the fact that we deal with this in hospitals and that clinicians are talking about specific diagnoses and prescribing medicine that does demystify this for, for people experienced in a lot of cases. Um, they can go the other way, of course, because like, there's issues of medication compliance that we can talk about. But for a lot of people, it really does take away the, the spiritual connection or at least make them question it. But then again, it could go in the other direction too. Perhaps people who have seizures, the doctors, and those who hear about these seizures might say, wait a minute, these are too powerful, too unique to just be a firing of neurons. Perhaps there is something more here. So the principal investigator on the study who I worked with, Professor Alistair Coles, um, is also an ordained reverend. And I think there's a sympathy to spiritual experience that he has there. But I mean, he's also very much a clinical neurologist. So there's a, I think he would be the first to say that we should prioritize medical safety. Um, but it's not to diminish the experiences people have or say that they're not real or authentic. We just have to sort of separate what the point of our research and the point of these interventions are. So, I mean, I think we've landed on uh, the adoption of a William James quote. Um, in which he says, you know, people were, are asking about the authenticity of mystical experiences. And he says, well, by their fruits, they will know them. You know, religious communities know their own and they know what is, is within their tradition, the divine speaking to people, and they know what is disease. And they, you know, that they're the experts on that. Our job is simply to note what is happening. I can't speak to ultimate authenticity and I try not to, frankly, because if, if I take a strong stance, we're denigrating the experience of saints and we're saying that the prophets maybe weren't really experiencing what they're experiencing. And I don't have the tools to claim that definitively. <laughs> I can simply tell you what people have told me and I can tell you what's on their chart. Like it, it, that, I'm not a theologian. It's not my job. And I'd, I'd be wary of entering that field. Joseph studies people who are currently having mystical experiences in their epileptic seizures. These are real people in the modern day who are having these unique experiences. 
Yeah. So, I mean, the, 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 if we're talking about methodology, the first thing is this is not a true experiment because I cannot assign epilepsy to people. I can't assign mystical experience to people. So we're very much drawing on just people from populations that we can access. Like this is not perfectly randomized just by the nature of the work. Um, so the way we went about this was we had sort of two main data streams. One was we were very, uh, and we're, we're deeply indebted to uh, Dr. Sophia Erickson um, at the uh, National Hospital in London, because uh, she, she allowed us to go through telemetry records um, with all the appropriate confidentiality questions. A lot of paperwork went into that actually to get a, to get access to these records. Um, but we're looking back at a multidisciplinary epilepsy meeting. So people who are candidates for surgery, who are you know seen by psychiatrists, psychologists, neurologists, surgeons, really to get a, a large scale whether they're good candidates. And this is a rich vein of data for what their experiences are like, what if any lesions or sort of areas of neurological insult they've had, as well as psychological assessments for diagnosis. So you know we went through about, and I say we, I did about I think it was nine hundred records. Um, looking for people whose aura descriptions might fit something that we were interested in. So that was the big sort of widespread shot. The other thing we did was we recruited through uh, uh, neurology clinics uh, specializing in epilepsy using a, a questionnaire. So we had a couple of questionnaires drawn from the Hood Mysticism Scale, a, a, a psychological battery used to assess mystical experience. And then we had a few other questions about sort of religious and spiritual life as well. Um, so we we gave about... I think we administered 350 of those somewhere in there. So we, we did quite a spread that way. And we also had clinician referrals. So if someone heard we were doing and said, oh, I have a patient who's kind of like that, we, we could get that as well. So quite a spread to find not actually that many people. This is, um, we're, we're, one of our assessments is that this is rarer than we initially thought. It's challenging to find people for a study like this. Some people are scared to talk about their feelings or their experiences. And let's face it, Many of us don't talk to our doctors about our religious or spiritual experiences at all. We did have one or two people who came to talks on this subject and identified themselves afterwards. And so we sort of looked at, and we got, we, we looked at records and sort of confirmed epilepsy diagnosis, all that, and they brought them in for interview. Um, so we, we did have one or two people find us, but that was for the most part, not how we went about things. Um, and, I mean, at the end of the day, it's very challenging to do this kind of research because people are often silent. And we've discovered that people don't non, don't necessarily talk to their clinician about these things either. In part, and this is no one's fault, there's just not enough time. You know, I, for many people, they get in, the clinician has a lot of questions about seizure frequency, sort of specific symptomology that can be used for clarity of diagnosis. And a lot of it's about medication level because these medications – that you have to take them consistently and you have to get the medication levels right. And so there's, there's just not a space for people to discuss these, these sort of expansive mystical feelings in, in a, you know, 10 to 15 minute checkup where the doctor really wants to make sure the medication's working because they want people to be able to drive. There's just so many practical concerns. I mean, this is something we always stress at talks and whenever we're discussing this, that epilepsy is a very, very debilitating disease. And it's, it's one of those diseases that even if you're not having symptoms all the time, the effect it has on your life in terms of mobility, in terms of the ability to drive, in terms of just sort of your confidence being out in the world is, is intensely impacted. It's a very, very hard thing to live with. So, you know, we, we, we want to prioritize safety more than anything, but that often does mean that these kind of experiences get pushed back and are, are, are secondary or third concern. The seizures that Joseph studies come in many forms. If there's one thing he learned, it's that the patient's seizures, just like the patients themselves, are very unique. 
Some people really only had these one or two times. Um, we had some people who had more recurring mystical type seizures, but a lot of their seizure symptomology really looked more conventional. And these were kind of unusual events. One of the dilemmas of our research is that we, it's, we can't capture a seizure whenever we want. People have to be having them. And blissfully for our patients, because they're recruited from these existing medical records and clinics, they have been getting treatment. So many of the patients we had had been seizure-free for a year, two years, three years. So these are retrospective looks at experiences they have had. Um, and we, we recognize them under the fallibility of that. A lot of patients' medication can impact their memory a bit, make it a little harder to recall things, some cognitive slowing as a side effect. So we, we, we did an uphill battle on every step to try to get the, the data we want to study this as well as we can. Sometimes the seizures would be filled with intense happiness, as if the universe is filled with love. We had one patient, like it's the one I've already mentioned about uh, post-surgery, having these senses of euphoria and joy. And so the way that this experience happened was every morning he would wake up and he would have this overwhelming sensation of the universe pouring love into him. There's a lot of light, a sense that things were bright. Uh, this would last for a bit of trauma in the morning, just emotionally overwhelming. Sometimes would feel like they wanted to run into the bathroom or a closet just so they weren't seen crying by other people. Then that would end, and he would be very tired, very cranky, which is not unusual for sort of a post-seizure event. And then kind of have a normal day, go to bed, and then start it over. And that went on for quite some, about a month um, with a little bit of diminishment every once in a while. Some seizures are very realistic. Time would pass at different rates. It was like stepping into a different world, experiencing new things and places, while hardly any time passed in reality. This is an interesting one, is a, a transportive sensation. So someone who would suddenly find themselves in a wholly different place, a Mideastern country of some kind. It's kind of a vague, un, un, nonspecific area. And there'd be this sense that these women needed help. And this person would help these women. or go, like, And it would feel like hours. Um, and Or even, a, I think, up to a day was the longest feeling of that. About 30, minute, 30 seconds to a minute in real time. So that one's very striking. So, so there's lots of different types of experiences that we, we found in interviews. And one of the most interesting things to me about these was how people didn't talk about them. For many of the patients said that I was the first person they ever told about it because they were so scared to share this kind of experience because it's so unusual. There's one patient, and this is a very unusual one, um, because it is... It has a very dreamlike quality due to the, the being a nocturnal seizure. This is someone who had this very intense sort of vision type experience, almost like a Dante's Inferno kind of trip through hell. Um, but this was uh, someone being guided through various parts of hell and seeing some very horrific things, but was getting away from them to some sort of transcendent heaven place, sort of a, a, a universe free of pain. And then woke up in a bathtub having had a very long generalized tonic-clonic seizure. So it, where the seizure symptomology starts and ends is a little tricky in that case, which is why I didn't necessarily bring it up. Um, and so that was a really, really striking case of terrifying imagery. What is it like to have these experiences? For people without epilepsy, they might have a strange fascination with these mystical experiences. Some try to duplicate them through drugs or through deep meditation. Because of our ability to scan the brain, 
we can see how these experiences compare with the seizures that occur during epilepsy. One of the questions we get a lot is about uh, psychotropic drugs and how much those relate to the kinds of experiences people are having. Um, and there, there is some interesting research on drugs like psilocybin and the way they can produce very profound experiences. The, the only issue is that like, things like psilocybin have a pretty – you can have some very wild experiences on psilocybin, but the studies that are controlled can produce pretty typical sensations. So there's a really cool study in which they gave people psilocybin in a controlled environment where they played classical music in headphones and had someone in the study just hold their hand and kind of keep things calm. And people really had quite profound experiences in that way and said it's some of the most important experiences of their life. But that isn't really what our patients are experiencing. Our patients have a much wider spread of, of experiences, and some of them are, are much more sort of expansive and transportive and unusual. So it, it, there are some key differences. We're not getting as a, as a precise effect as that drug has. And that's not necessarily, not necessarily surprising because our patients – so symptomology varies. So we had some who are sort of have a, a cryptogenic epilepsy. It's not really clear what in the brain is causing it. For others, they have very clear, um, like in like insults to the brain. Clear, like you know, there's a a cavernoma growing in in one, in one patient's head. Another had just been out of surgery, like I talked about. So we have such different areas of the brain being affected in terms of in terms of what is bringing about the epilepsy. We're not so like surprised to see that we have a lot of different types of experiences. There's a lot of interesting research on meditation, um, in, in which you have like Buddhist monks meditating and they would sort of tell someone like, I'm, I'm really in it. I'm feeling this sense of sort of enlightenment and just fading away. And someone would hit a button and push a contrast through and they would do an fMRI about like measuring blood flow about when they hit enlightenment and what that looked like. Um, but the Buddhist tradition of enlightenment is very, very different than having transportive experiences or intense overflowing of love. In fact, having an intense emotion of love is kind of the opposite. It's not really the point. So we're dealing with very different types of experiences. And I think the, the, the frontal lobe research is very cool. It's not what a lot of our patients were, were going through. These experiences are vastly different from being transported to another place, to seeing the face of God, or to understanding the meaning of the universe. Because they are so different... Is there one thing that defines them as being mystical? We try to take a very expansive one. Um, and so our definition is really more about what people describe as reality-altering, significantly important experiences. And that is, I mean, some people may find that too broad, and I, I would accept that criticism of it being extremely broad because we, we wanted to capture as much as possible. Um, so I think that's that's one of the key ways in which we're envisioning mysticism is you're you're encountering a divine thing in some way and it is a fundamental shift from your day-to-day -day reality. I, I think from a, a methodological perspective, when we're talking about qualitative research and we're treating people as experts in their own experiences, you end up in this place where you have to you have to manage your own metaphysical expectations. I mean, one of the things I really like about our study is we have a fairly balanced perspective. So we have you know, someone who is a church, we have two people who are Church of England priests. I personally am an atheist. So we're coming at this from very different sort of interpretations of what the spiritual is and whether it exists, trying to then do this research that is the most generous that it can be to our patients' experiences. So for me, you know, there is that moment where you have to at least consider the possibility that there's something out there that is linked to this in order just to be sympathetic and understanding and treat your patients as though they know what they're, they, they, that they truly understand what they're going through, which I think is at least a fair place to start. It's very tricky <laughs> to, to sort of keep your own footing um, when, when doing this kind of work. And I think like from a qualitative perspective, 
making sure that you know where your experience is and where it is potentially shading your questioning or shading your interpretation and trying not to let it overwhelm how you're approaching this work. What these experiences mean for the people that are having them or for people who hear about them is a very personal thing. Are they a complex reaction from the firing of neurons in the brain? Or are they something more? Do the people who have these experiences really experience the transcendent? Joseph looks at these cases free of judgment and assumption. For his patients, this is the only way that he should do this. But for the rest of us, I suppose that these experiences might mean something different to everybody. But that's for all of us to decide for ourselves. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us at the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or your favorite podcast platforms. It was great to have you join us today, and I hope it gave you something to think about. You can join the community of the podcast and become more involved on patreon.com sparkdialogue. Thanks for listening, and see you in two weeks for another episode. Many thanks to our voice actor who played the part of Fedor Dotevsky, Andre Schroeder. Some of the background music that you heard was produced by me. Others are clips from Winding Into Gone by Dirk Kodertisk, featuring Cody, Virtues Instrumenti, Lost Time, Black Vortex, Gymnopita Number 1, and Day of Chaos by Kevin McLeod. More information about these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.